All right, the rest of you can open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. It'll be at the very last story in Mark chapter 10. And this serves as a transition in the book of Mark. And so up until this point, as we've talked about, we've been leading up to the, uh, Mark declaring who this Jesus is and building the case for him to be the Messiah. And then we got to the section where Jesus starts to foretell his death and resurrection. There's a turning point when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And so then in, in the last couple of chapters, Jesus has been talking about, okay, this is the road that I am on. This is the way that I am going. And if you would have life in me, if you would find me, if you would be my disciple, then follow me. And so Jesus is starting to make it very clear of what his road is going to look like. And he's telling them, if you are going to be my disciple, then follow me. And in this section, we've had some pretty challenging passages of Jesus declaring what it looks like to be his disciple. And it's difficult to sometimes look through those and try to wrestle with those um, and, and figure out in light of the things that we've always thought or things that we have been taught or things that we, um, just our own views, our own views on, on religion or trying to create um, our own picture of who Jesus is or what it means to follow him. And here in these sections, we have Jesus emphatically saying, this is what it looks like to follow me. And he and Mark just masterfully weaves these stories together, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he lands on this simple, short story that serves as a way of kind of tying up what has come before. So let's pray together as we look at this passage. Father, I pray that this morning that you... that you would unshackle us from the things that keep us from pursuing you fully. God, there are so many things that enslave us, our, our sin, our circumstances. But mostly, God, we are enslaved. We function though as though we are enslaved to the sin that dwells in our hearts and and keeps us from knowing you fully. So God, this morning I pray for those who do not yet know you. That they would maybe for the first time see who you are. That they would respond to your call. And God, I pray for those who have known you. But who have have found themselves to be functioning as slaves rather than sons and daughters, that they would be set free this morning. I ask these things of you, Lord, because you are the only one who can do them. And I pray that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 10 Starting in verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. 
And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. There's so many interesting things about this passage and about this story of Jesus healing Bartimaeus. And there's so many different directions that that one could go. But as we look at this and see it in the context of Mark chapter 10 and, and, and truly in light of the entire gospel of Mark, there are some really interesting things that stand out. One is it's interesting that Bartimaeus is the only person who is named among those who are healed. So Bartimaeus has a proper name. And son of Timaeus is just a translation of that. And so Mark, again, is demonstrating that he's, he is um, writing to a Gentile audience that may not know uh, what Bartimaeus means. And so he says, you know, son of, son, son of Timaeus. But we see in Bartimaeus this, this name given to this man. And he's a blind man, a blind beggar who is sitting along the side of the road. And what's going on here, kind of set the stage, is Jesus is, is making his way to Jerusalem. And now he is um, through Jericho, which is probably a little less than 20 miles away from Jerusalem. And so he's making his way. He's getting very near to Jerusalem. He is on his road to suffering. And as he's on this road, it's also the pilgrimage that's happening um, for Passover, And so there'd be lots of people walking this road to Jerusalem. And it would be really common for rabbis to have a a crowd of people with them um, because as you're going on this pilgrimage to Passover, it it would be common to walk with a rabbi and that the rabbi would teach as he would walk. And so all of that would be very common. But what wouldn't have been common is the number of the crowd that is with Jesus. There is a different excitement and an energy around this crowd. And so if you imagine Bartimaeus sitting there on the side of the road, blind, likely hungry, and hearing all the commotion around him, Jericho is a, is a thriving city at this point. So he's used to noise and used to commotion. He's used to all of those things. That wasn't unusual, but there's something unique about this crowd as it came forward. There's a different kind of energy. There's a different kind of excitement. And many believe that it would have been normal or would have been typical that Bartimaeus would reach out and perhaps he asked somebody as the crowd is marching by, what's going on? What's happening here? What's, what's different about this group of people? What, what's happening? And maybe someone told him, it's Jesus. And so whatever happens, however Bartimaeus knows he believes that Jesus is walking by 
Now this tells us something else that's really interesting, and that, that is that Jesus was well known. Everybody would have heard these stories by this point. Everybody heard the stories about the lame who are healed and walk, and the blind who regain their sight, the lepers who are made clean. Everybody would have heard of how he had challenged the religious authorities. And so here's Bartimaeus in his hopelessness, in, in his misery, hearing about this Jesus and all of a sudden thinking maybe, maybe he's heard those accounts. It's sure that he has heard these accounts. Maybe he's witnessed and known people who have experienced these things. And all of a sudden, a hope stirs in him that he probably had long since before lost. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's interesting that he says, son of David. What he's saying here is even though he's blind, he recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. That term, son of David, was a messianic term. So he's not just saying, okay, Jesus, you great healer, this person I've seen you do these other things. He's saying, Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on me. And so one of the things I believe that Mark is trying to communicate here is that here is this blind beggar who sees Jesus more clearly than most of the crowd. And even than some of his disciples, even the people who knew Jesus best didn't see Jesus as clearly as Bartimaeus does here. And he cries out, have mercy on me. Now it's important that we take a step back and like many times in Mark, we see what we have before us is a pretty embarrassing scene. It's It's uncomfortable. How many times have we gone through that in the gospel of Mark when, especially early on in the book of Mark, when most of the healings are taking place, that people are coming forward to Jesus that should not be approaching him, that should know better. It's uncomfortable. It's embarrassing. This, this isn't a dignified religious leader asking a well-thought-out and well-crafted question. This isn't even a, a leader who's wanting to engage in a debate with Jesus, a thoughtful debate. This is a blind man, an outcast, sitting on the side of the road, screaming out like a madman. And he's screaming out for Jesus to have mercy on him. Because another thing that's important about Bartimaeus here is not only does he know who Jesus is, he knows who he is. He cries out for mercy. This is one of the really fascinating things about the Gospels. If you read through them, all four of the Gospels, the people that the culture would have seen as the outcasts and as the people whose example is meant to be avoided, the Gospels lift them up as the heroes. And the people that, that the culture at the time would have said, well, here obviously is the, the exemplary person. This is the person to um, be emulated and to, to follow. They are often humbled. And they are treated often as the villains. We see this so many times, these scenes of people who are desperate, who know that they are desperate for mercy, who know they have no standing, coming forward and being incredibly forward with Jesus. 
doing things that people would not normally do, certainly not an outcast. We saw that way back in in Mark chapter 1 when a leper came up to Jesus and runs up to him, imploring him and kneeling and grabbing him, saying, if you will, you can make me clean. A horrifying scene in this culture. And Jesus, moved with pity, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. We see it in in Mark chapter 5 with the bleeding woman who Jesus, as he's on his way to heal an important person's daughter, gets stopped by a woman who'd been bleeding and considered unclean for 12 years. She runs up to him, casting aside any shame or anything, runs up to him thinking, if I can just touch the hem of his robe, I can be healed. It's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable that a leper, that an unclean woman, and now that a blind beggar would just run up to Jesus, scream out with no shame, and make a scene. But this is a continual theme in Scripture. The blind, the poor, the social outcast, the sinners... Their faith is exalted. Their desperation is the example to follow. And the major reason why they end up being heroes in the scriptures is because they have nothing to hide. They have no reputation to protect. They cry out from, not from a place of entitlement, but one of desperation, of complete need, just falling at the feet of Jesus, nothing to lose. And you contrast that with others who stand before Jesus and say, prove it to me. If you're the son of God, do this for me. Or I'm willing to follow you, but in these ways. Or I, surely, Jesus, you'd be thrilled to have me. Like, I'm, I'm interviewing and auditioning you as much as the other way around. And we see that, again, all through the Gospel of Mark and certainly in this chapter. Just a couple of weeks ago, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus in his self-righteousness. Right? He comes to Jesus saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, hey, look, you know the law. And, the, and this man says, yeah, I do. I follow all that stuff. Look at the difference between the way the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and the way Bartimaeus approaches Jesus. Or the way the leper approaches Jesus. Or the way the bleeding woman approaches Jesus. Bartimaeus doesn't call out and say, Jesus, it's unfair that I'm blind. I never did anything. Most commentators believe that Bartimaeus, because of the the situation around him, was probably blind since birth. So he didn't do anything. It's not his fault. He didn't make some moral choice that was was wrong, and so therefore he's being disciplined or, or punished. He didn't cry that out. He didn't say, it's not fair. Why did God do this to me? Like, make right this wrong. He cries out and says, have mercy on me. Whereas the rich young ruler says, Jesus, I've done all of these things. What else, what else could I possibly have to do? I hope that in the Gospels you see this clear truth. The one who comes to Jesus with nowhere else to go 
and nothing to lose gains everything. But the one who comes with something to lose, something to hang on to, leaves with nothing. They don't leave with a little bit less. They leave with nothing. And as Mark is transitioning to the road to Jerusalem and to the triumphal entry and the crucifixion and the resurrection, he's asking this question of his Gentile readers, which are you? Do you come to Jesus knowing your desperate state? Or do you believe yourself worthy of a hearing from God? Do you come to Jesus with no reputation or with one that you're trying to protect? See, Bartimaeus only sees himself as someone in desperate need of mercy. He's the very type of person Jesus might help. So he cries out, have mercy on me. And he's rebuked. Be quiet. You're making a scene. The rebuke is quick and harsh and clear. Isn't it bad enough that you're an embarrassment to the whole culture by sitting here unclean, dirty, hungry, blind? Isn't that bad enough? Aren't you embarrassed enough because of your state? And now you're going to start screaming out for Jesus to help you? Have you no shame? Have you no self-respect? And Mark is hitting on another theme here in chapter 10. And that's this, the ones who most understand their need are often rebuked by those who think they understand who Jesus is. We see that in, in earlier in the, with the little children in, in chapter 10. And the people were bringing children to him that he might touch them. You think of parents who are just like, okay, Jesus, I want not only for me, but for my kids. And they're bringing these children before and the disciples rebuke them. The ones who should know the most about who Jesus says the kingdom is for. The ones who should most understand Jesus' pattern of who he reaches out to, who he heals, who he cares for, don't get it. And they rebuke the ones that Jesus wants to come to him. You see it in the disciples you see it in the Pharisees and in the scribes. And today you see it in people who are religious but do not know Jesus. Who are moral but do not know Christ. It's so common. There's a famous story in Luke chapter 7 of the sinful woman who is anointing Jesus and she comes hearing that Jesus is there reclining at a table in a Pharisee's house. She breaks through all of the social decorum and goes right to him. And she takes this oil and she pours it over Jesus' feet. And she is weeping and she is wiping. She's beginning to wet her, his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. 
I, I have said this before, but if you've never read this, read this later this week. Read it today, Luke chapter 7, and really put yourself in there and really capture the humiliation of the moment, the uncomfortable nature of it. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus knew exactly who this woman was and is exactly the person he came for. But now he is rebuked. This idea that we would rebuke those, that we would look at others, that we would compare ourselves to others, that we would say, okay, God, I know, I know generically I'm a sinner. I get that, but I'm not like that kind of sinner. If you have never thought that, if you are sitting here right now today and you say, I have never thought that, I've never even come close to feeling that, the Bible would say you're a liar. If we are honest with ourselves, that has come up. And Jesus stands against that. He tells a parable in Luke 18 for this very purpose of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the Pharisee stands by himself praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. If you've ever looked at our culture, any part of our culture, and said, oh, I'm glad I'm not like you, then this is about you. We are rebuked both by people and by ourselves, and we rebuke others. And it's sometimes so subtle we don't even realize that we're doing it. We don't even notice that we become so comfortable with our moral superiority that we don't even recognize it when it happens. In the Gospel of Mark, the ones who just lay themselves at the feet of Jesus with no list of the things that they have done right, those are the ones who receive mercy But they rebuke him. And his response, and I love the response, it says, He cried out all the more Son of David, have mercy on me. So they rebuke him, they tell him, Be quiet. Have some self-respect. Don't bring this attention on yourself. Jesus is important. He is with important people. You are not. Stick to the sideline. And in the face of that rebuke, he doesn't cower. He cries out all the more. And his response is like all the other responses of the stories I just mentioned. The response of the people in the Gospels, when they are rebuked, when, they, when the culture attempts to shame them for laying themselves unashamedly at the, at the feet of Jesus, their response is, they don't 
care. They don't care. The parents keep bringing the children. The children keep coming. The woman continues to cry and wash Jesus' feet with her tears. The leper runs up and implores Jesus to make him clean anyway. The bleeding woman rushes forward just to touch his robe and to put herself in the spotlight. And this man cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't care what other people say. He doesn't care how foolish he looks. He has nothing to lose and everything to gain. Why do these people act like this? It's simple. Because they see who Jesus is. They see what he offers. It is worth being seen as foolish. In fact, how they look is probably the furthest thing from their minds. That's that's what happens when you're faced with that kind of treasure. A couple of months ago, I got to take my kids for the first time in, in their memory to one of the greatest places on earth, Wrigley Field, home of the great Chicago Cubs, who are so great, they can't make the playoffs, even when they pay more than anybody else. But... It's neither here nor there. What is here or there is that we, my kids wanted to go and get there when the gates opened, which is insanely early, especially for my wife, who likes baseball quite a bit, but not enough to go when the gates open. And so we went, when the gates were open, we were in line, and we went in there because my kids wanted an autograph. They wanted to catch foul balls. They wanted to, you know, during batting practice, they wanted to see all of that. And it's a pretty interesting scene. You would think like, oh, you get there early, you're probably pretty much alone. No, there's thousands of people there right when the gates open. And they're going and they're, as the players walk by, you see people like calling out for an autograph. They're trying to get the player's attention. Like, hey, I want, I want you to sign my ball. And the loudest ones always are the children. The children and some weird adults, but mostly the children, okay? And, and, I'm, I'm sitting back going like, would it be cool if Anthony Rizzo came over and signed a baseball for my kids and for me? Like, yeah, I think that'd be pretty cool. But I'm not going to make a fool of myself. And there were lots of kids making fools of themselves, but it felt kind of normal. It felt kind of natural. Now, my kids are a little more reserved, so they, they weren't. They were kind of standing back. But here's what's interesting about it. My kids were very polite. It's one of the things Lauren, we, we, we were encouraged by. We weren't sure how they would function, but they were very polite. They let other kids go in front of them. They, they actually, you get to go out on the field, like you're just right there by the edge, by the dugout, and some of the players or um, coaches or whatever will come to this little corral where they corral all these kids, and they'll sign autographs. And we watched, and we took some video of it, and the kids are like, like kind of clawing over each other. There's a, there's a bigger kid that was just pushing little kids away. There were parents screaming, you know, from the, the stands of like, hey, don't let my kid get pushed out of the way because parents weren't allowed down there because parents are not rational people when it comes to that. And so they, they wisely just make it like 12 and under. And so here are all my kids. And one by one, my kids all kind of, you know, if someone tried to budge in front of them, they just let them go. And my wife and I, Laura and I sat back and we're like, oh, that's kind of nice. That's kind of nice to see that. So here's what's interesting about that, though. Lots of kids that day left with autographs. My kids didn't. Because they were polite. Now, I'm glad they were. Because getting an autograph from a baseball player, 
that's not worth making that kind of a scene. But Jesus, if you really believe that what he has to offer you is freedom and life and joy and salvation, make a scene. I think that churches are filled today with very polite Christians who never receive what Jesus is offering because they're polite. We just kind of sit back. Our prayers are like, well, God, I know there are other people that have bigger needs. There's other bigger things. So it's kind of silly for me to ask. I'm doing pretty good. There's things like world hunger and all that. I don't really need to concern you with, with my heart. And then what's happening is not just that, but we realize we're maybe protecting ourselves a little bit. Because nothing's worse than making yourself a fool for something and putting yourself way out there and then not receiving what you wanted to receive. So what if God doesn't answer my prayer? What if he doesn't set me free? What if I still struggle with this? But if we really see who he is and what he offers, we cry out unashamedly because we have nothing to lose and everything to gain. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's a parable. It's not a real thing that happened. Jesus is telling a story, but it's not too much of a jump to imply in that that the man looks foolish for selling everything. He should probably hold some things back. Because what if it doesn't work out? What if you open up that and the treasure isn't what you thought it was? question for Bartimaeus is simple. Would you rather keep your pride, what little dignity you have left, and continue to be blind? Or give up whatever shred of dignity or pride you have left and gain your sight? So many people don't cry out to Jesus because of their pride. They see themselves as not as in need as anyone else. Let me tell you something. You are every bit as in need as everyone else. So am I. I just want you to know that I unashamedly pray for me all the time. I mean, I pray for you all also, but I pray for me more than anyone because I see how desperately I need Him. I don't know everything about your heart, I don't know all the things that you struggle with. I see on a daily basis my sin, my depravity, and I cry out to Jesus to change me. We don't tend to want to admit that we have been foolish or that we have missed it or that we have been sinful or that we are desperate for mercy. And we will often, I see people hold on to that and stay on the road of destruction rather than finding life. What will it take to get you to a place where you see that you have nothing to lose and everything to gain by laying yourself out completely at the feet of Jesus. You can't approach Jesus 
wanting to hang on to a shred of dignity or self-respect or status or standing before others. So many Americans especially try to find a Christianity that is palatable, one that will make them still look normal. It is nothing new. It's, it's been the pro- approach with Jesus all through the Gospels, and they end up with nothing. So this man cries out, and Jesus stops and says, call him. Another translation says, Jesus stood still. It's, it has this kind of emphatic wording that uh, is depicting that Jesus like just froze. Hearing this blind beggar scream out for him to have mercy, and he says, call him. Just like the bleeding woman, Jesus stops. So when you call out to Jesus like that, with that kind of guttural scream that's just from the depths of your soul, rest assured, Jesus stops. And he hears you. And he says to the people with him, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And his response matches his cries for mercy. He was shameless in his calling out and he's shameless in his response. He throws off his cloak and he springs up and comes to Jesus. How else would you respond? How else would you expect him to respond when he's crying out that he, as he was and now all of a sudden Jesus says, bring him to me. And they tell him that. Take heart. Have courage. Get up. He's calling you and he springs up. It reveals how desperate he really was, how he really had put all of his eggs in this basket. Do you respond that way when you hear his voice? So desperate, you spring up, throw off your cloak, and run to him. Or do you have more dignity than that? More self-respect, more of, yeah, okay. Okay, God, thank you for answering my prayer. I'll be there in just a minute. We do that. I know that happens even as we're singing songs and worshiping God and you feel that God is stirring something in your heart and you think, oh, I just want to, I just want to express myself. Like I just want to, I want to lift up my hands. I want to, I want to just worship God freely. And then there's just like, well, come on, don't make a scene. You can, you can go home and you can tell God all of these things later. Or you feel yourself overcome and you feel tears coming on because you're just so at a place where you just cannot believe the grace and the mercy of God and you stop. And you think about something else. Because you don't want to make a scene. And he gets to Jesus. And Jesus, of all the gall, of all the nerve, this blind beggar who's crying out, Jesus, have mercy on me, runs up to him, and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? What a strange question. Not only because Jesus obviously knew what the blind man wanted, but so did everybody else. It's not like anybody was going, huh, I wonder what his issue is. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? 
Because Jesus isn't going to let him go without saying it. I think that's because it's demonstrating a trust in him. It's, he's getting Bartimaeus to declare before everyone, I believe you can heal me. And Jesus isn't going to leave anything unsaid. He, understand this. Jesus doesn't handle this kind of business quietly. We wish he would because we're Midwesterners. But he does not. He doesn't handle it on the DL or subtly or with a little bit of decorum. He calls it out and floods it with light. And that makes us cringe. I know it makes me cringe. The bleeding woman tried to be discreet. Like, give the woman some credit. Like, she was willing to forsake the shame of other people, running up there and touching the cloak of Jesus' robe. She didn't want to bother him. She would just go on your way. She didn't want to embarrass anyone and certainly didn't want to embarrass Jesus. And Jesus stops in the middle. Who touched me? He could have looked at Bartimaeus from the side of the road with kind of a, a knowing look and just given him his sight. He could have even, when Bartimaeus ran up to him, just kind of put his hand on his shoulder. And then all of a sudden Bartimaeus could see. But he doesn't do that. He makes the bleeding woman identify herself. He makes Bartimaeus say it out loud. And we have created a type of Christianity that is quiet. A faith in Jesus and the Bible is not quiet. This is contrasted a lot in Scripture. One of the clearest ways is, um, and I'm just going to cite them and you can go and read them later, but there's an interesting contrast in John chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 3, is a story of Nicodemus, who is a teacher, he's a ruler of the Jews, and he comes to Jesus. When does he come to Jesus? When does he come to Jesus? At night. Comes to Jesus by night. Why? Because he has a reputation to uphold. Because he can't be seen just going and asking this new rabbi about these things. And he comes to Jesus by night. And then, a chapter later, in John 4, Jesus interacts with a sinful woman, the Samaritan woman, at the well. And when does that happen? At noon, in the middle of the day. See, a respectable man can't handle the damaged reputation of being seen with Jesus, so he comes to him by cover of night. And a chapter later, a woman with a terrible reputation who Jesus should not have wanted to be seen with is confronted in the middle of the day. Nicodemus tries to present himself as someone worthy of this knowledge, but Jesus brings light to his confusion. And what happens is Nicodemus starts out confident and discreet and Jesus floods it with light and Nicodemus leaves confused. But the woman at the well starts out confused and on full display. And after being with Jesus, she leaves declaring to her entire village, could this be the Christ? I know many of you wish Jesus would deal with you under the radar quietly. 
But that's not how he works. We are trophies of his grace. We are testimonies to his miraculous work. There are times he tells people to be quiet, but that is a temporary thing. So what do you really want? What do you want? What is going on in your life right now? What are you desperate to see God work in? Don't just look at external circumstances. Look at your heart. What are you desperate for? Where are you blind? What are you not seeing? If your heart is hardened and you don't have the joy you once had, if you're spiritually blind in that way, cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. If you feel blind in reading the Bible, you used to read it and used to be fed by it, and now you read it and it feels dead to you. Cry out for him to have mercy on you. Or maybe it's physical and you want to be healed. Let us pray for you. Tell him what you want him to do for you. And understand that any healing you receive is meant to open your eyes to see him. That's what he asks Bartimaeus. What do you want? And he says, I want to see. And Jesus does it. And he says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So one last thing to point out here. He says, your faith has made you well. And he says, go your way. But where does Bartimaeus go? With Jesus. Jesus says, okay, I've healed you. I've given you what you want. Now go your way. And Bartimaeus says, my way's with you. I'm following you. Here we have a great picture of what it looks like to identify with Christ, to be united with him in his death and in his resurrection. Bartimaeus's road is gone, and now the road is the road of Jesus. And so it is with you. Bartimaeus starts out wanting to see, but in the process of being healed, he discovers what he really wants is to be with Jesus. He sees that the healer is an even greater gift than the healing. So do you see that? Do you want to see that? Do you come to him with your desperate need or with your credentials and your resume? Do you cry out to him, willing to look foolish in front of others? Or do you try to go quietly under the cover of darkness? What do you want? What are you trying to hold on to? Maybe you've never believed, never really believed. You've been dragged to church for so long you can't even remember what it was, what it was like before. Maybe you've come willingly and more and more willingly, but you've never fully bought into this. Because after all, you have your dignity. You're not one of those irrational Christians. Or maybe you, you believe, but you haven't gone all in because you just think like the, the example that was set for you is that faith is quiet, it is personal, and it is private. Or maybe you have asked for forgiveness generically, but never fully repented because at least you're not as bad as those other sinners. Or maybe Jesus has grabbed onto your heart a little and you do believe, but you just don't want it to be public. 
You handle your business with God. It's between you and God. How many examples do we have to see? So maybe for you this morning, it is repenting and receiving Christ as your Savior. Maybe it's the decision to get baptized. Maybe it's asking for forgiveness from someone else and laying aside your own pride and needing to be asked for forgiveness back and just saying, I'm going to confess this. Whatever it is, cry out. I'm going to ask, I've asked a few people to come forward to offer to pray. And what we're going to do is a little different and it's going to be uncomfortable. One thing I can guarantee is it's going to be uncomfortable. I don't know what's going to happen right now, but I'm pretty sure that no one's going to leave thinking that was super comfortable. So I'm going to ask those people that I've already asked to come forward to, um, to pray. And Martin, I'm going to ask you to come forward also, even though I didn't. I've asked a couple of men and women. And before we take communion, if you have business to take care of with God, if you have been feeling during this message, this is something I need, I am crying out, I need you, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. I've been battling this for so long. I've been crippled by this for so long. I've been chained up for so long. If you are feeling that, then cry out. And I believe that what God's word is saying, his unending, inerrant word has brought you in this moment, in this place for a reason. I can't orchestrate that. But God can and does. And what this text is saying is take heart. Get up. He is calling you. And I am asking you to not let those who might rebuke you or question you or wonder what in the world all of that is about, let them. Who cares? The one who is calling you is the one who loved you and gave himself up for you, who offers you healing, who offers you life, who offers you unending joy, who offers you purpose. He is the one who is calling you. So I'm going to have, Joe's just going to play some music. I'm going to ask that you just sit there and consider this. If you hear him calling you, then get up and come forward and seek out one of these people and just say, would you pray for me? I'm asking Jesus for this. And if you don't want to do that, if you want to just come forward and kneel up here, you go ahead and do it. Whatever you want to do. But I think there is something valuable and real to this text saying, get up. And believe me, with communion and everything else going on, there are lots of parts of me that said, this is ridiculous. Because first of all, people are going to be uncomfortable with it. And then we are doing communion and this just doesn't work out logistically. And all I kept seeing as I'm reading this text over and over and over again is get up. He is calling you, get up. So I'm asking you, get up and come forward and pray 
and receive the life that God has given you and offers you. And when that is happening, we will call forward and we will let people come forward and take communion. But in this time, get up. He's calling you. Come forward and pray.